in. Be of good cheer. If you're a follower of Jesus, know that God in his providence is leading you forward. And so, uh, as Paul now is marking his way toward Rome, although it doesn't look like it, uh, he's, he's been arrested and, and held guard in Jerusalem. And as he's held guard in Jerusalem, we pick up the story in uh, Acts chapter 24. In Acts chapter 24, we see that Paul uh, is brought uh, 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 and, and accused of sedition. Uh, when, when uh, uh, verse one, now after five days, Ananias, the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus and gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Paul has been sent from Jerusalem to Caesarea and Caesarea is kind of a headquarters uh, for the governor whose name was Felix. Felix uh, was there at Caesarea and he was going to judge Paul. Now, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they wanted Paul to be put to death. They wanted him in prison, wanted him out of the way. Uh, but Felix said, I'm going to hear the case. And so Paul is accused there in verse 1. The court uh, trial begins in verse 1. Uh, the uh, the Jewish leaders hire a Gentile who probably has some Jewish connection named Tertullus, who is uh, uh, an, uh, an attorney. And Tertullus uh, uh, is there to accuse the Apostle Paul of all kinds of crimes. He, he begins with this wonderful description of Felix. It's uh, uh, most noble Felix in verse 3. Uh, he says, uh, uh, you have done great things for the Judeans. And this is an example of what happens in speeches where you honor the judge or the governor or whoever it is, the person who sits in authority, you honor them. Now, Tertullus does it in a way that is kind of fawning and stretching the truth. Uh, and so he's talking to Felix and he says, Felix, you are the best thing since sliced bread. Well, nobody in Judah really believed, Judea believed that Felix was the best thing since sliced bread. But, but after he says how noble Felix is, then he says, uh, talks about how bad Paul is. He, he gives these, all the dishonorable deeds and characters, uh, characteristics of the apostle Paul. It says uh, uh, that, verse 5, we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He says that Paul is a serious threat to the security of the Roman Empire, and the Jewish leaders uh, were bringing this charge against Paul, just as they did against Jesus. Uh, just as they, in Luke 23, accused Jesus of being uh, a danger to the empire uh, before Pilate, now we hear the Jews before the governor Felix saying, Paul, the ringleader of this sect of the way, uh, is a danger to the Roman empire. Beginning in verse 10, Paul then turns and makes his defense. Paul takes the arguments of Tertullus and answers with his defense, a defense of himself and his character. Just as Tertullus began with uh, uh, praise to Governor Felix, Paul does the same, except Paul doesn't stretch the truth. He merely says, Felix, you've been doing this for a long time, and I know that you are well equipped to handle the judgment before us. Paul notes that he had been in Jerusalem for only 12 days, 
Uh, and that's a brief amount of time to create all the trouble that he's accused of. Or, or more than that, he said, it was only 12 days ago, and there should be witnesses here uh, who could validate their charges or validate me. Uh, he does confess, however, that uh, he is a follower of Jesus, that he is a follower of uh, the way. Uh, but that should not be construed as defiling the temple. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, but this I confess to you. Can you imagine in court uh, where Paul is defending himself or any uh, uh, defendants defending themselves and all of a sudden they say, I confess? I mean, everybody's ears perked up for sure, but here's what Paul confessed to. He said, uh, I confess to you that according to the way which they call the sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Paul affirmed his desire to fulfill God's will, believing all things written by the law, uh, in the law and the prophets. That's hardly the work of defiling the temple. Uh, Paul's one belief that there is resurrection from the dead literally makes him more acutely aware of how he will be accountable to God for the things he does on this earth. So he wants to have a clear conscience before God and others. When Paul gives his defense, answers the charges of Tertullus, Felix adjourn the case. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on in the mind of Felix, the governor. Uh, a few uh, uh, verses later, we find out that he's waiting for a bribe, either from Paul's group or the Jewish group. Uh, uh, other uh, uh, indications of, of Felix and, and why he adjourned the case, probably, as, as we come to know, Felix was not that interested in getting into in inner theological squabbles among the Jews. He, he just wasn't interested in doing that. And, and so he wanted to adjourn the case and see what would settle out. He, he was going to call the commander of the guard uh, to come and hang out and, and answer some of the questions. Uh, so uh, he, uh, uh, he, he uh, adjourned the case. Now, what this does is it sets up um, an opportunity for Paul to share the gospel. This is what we learn in this passage, that the setbacks that seem to be so apparent, Paul being arrested, Paul being in jail, Paul being in chains, Paul being accused in an open court in a Roman justice system. All of those seem like setbacks. But God had orchestrated all of those events so that they would be a setup for Paul to share the gospel. And Paul, in his trial before Felix, uh, was set up by God's grace with an opportunity to share the gospel with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Paul uh, was in chains, but God had opened a door for him to tell Felix, the governor of the region, and his wife, who Jesus is. Look at verses 24 and 25. After some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning faith in Christ. Now, as Paul reasoned about righteousness, 
self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. The desire of Drusilla, uh, by the way, Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa number one and the granddaughter uh, uh, and the sister of Herod Agrippa II. Felix and Drusilla were married. Drusilla had been uh, queen uh, uh, to a king. Uh, and uh, when uh, Felix met Drusilla, he was enamored with her beauty. And he convinced her to divorce her king uh, husband and marry him. And, and Drusilla was Jewish in background, probably not that intent uh, on following Jewish customs or traditions. Uh, but there was enough understanding uh, in Drusilla's mind and heart that she wanted to know more about the way, uh, about this Jesus Christ. Felix himself, uh, we read, was uh, uh, astutely aware of the way of Jesus Christ and the things of Jesus Christ. He had an understanding of that. Uh, and he wanted to know more. So here is the ringleader, according to the Jews, of the way. And so Felix and Drusilla get together. They say, let's have Paul come in and explain to us more about this. So this is a setback in worldly terms. That's a setup in God's economy of doing things for Paul to tell uh, uh, kings and rulers who Jesus is. And Paul tells them about what it means to have faith in Christ. Now, that's the gospel. He's saying you got to believe on Jesus, and that faith in Christ is uh, couched in terms of salvation, repentance from sin. He talks about self-control or discipline. He talks about righteousness. He, he talks about uh, the judgment to come, and, and, and with the gospel being presented that God sent Jesus to die for sinners, to, uh, to, to give his life in the place of sinners so that they might be forgiven their sin. Uh, how that Jesus is raised from the dead, and that resurrection is the hallmark point of Paul's message that we will be resurrected from the dead and answer to God uh, for the life that we live here in the flesh. It is that resurrection of Jesus that, that uh, paves the way for us to have a new life. So Paul's talking about how to be right in the sight of God, how to live a life that is pleasing to God in discipline and self-control, and how to be ready for the judgment to come, uh, all through faith in Christ. And as Paul's preaching, all of a sudden, Felix gets convicted or worried or frightened here. He's, he's getting scared, and he's saying, stop, I can't handle all this. And come back later, and we'll talk some more. Well, that later became two years. Uh, Paul uh, regularly came back and visited with uh, Felix. Uh, we see that, that uh, Felix uh, heard the things uh, that Paul had said, and, and, and he, he brought him back and, and sent for him. Verse 26, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Uh, but verse 27, it says, after two years. So Paul's been in the Caesarean uh, imprisonment for about two years. Uh, during this time, at the end of that two years, Felix is replaced by a guy named Festus. Uh, Felix left Paul bound in prison, and Festus takes over. Uh, that picks up the story in chapter 25. In verses 1 through 12, we see that Festus, who is now the new governor, uh, 
uh, is approached by the chief priest and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they were asking for Paul uh, to be brought from Caesarea back to Jerusalem where he can be tried by the Sanhedrin. But really their motivation, according to, the, uh, to, uh, to Luke, is that they wanted to um, ambush that caravan from Caesarea back to Jerusalem and, uh, and, and uh, assassinate Paul. This is the same plan that they had when Paul was first put in prison uh, in Jerusalem. They wanted to kill Paul. Um, but Festus, either by virtue of just common sense or because he didn't want to give too much away to uh, the, Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish leaders or perhaps he understood what their plot would be, he said, no, I'll go to Caesarea and I will judge to see if there's anything to the charges against him. Uh, and Festus uh, said, hey, listen, verse 4, he said, that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he was going there shortly. Uh, and he invited the uh, Jewish leaders to join him on that journey. Now, I want you to read along with me, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 25. Uh, when he had remained among them more than 10 days, that's Festus with the uh, Jerusalem leaders, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when Paul had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself. Now, here's Paul's defense two years after he defended himself against Felix. He says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Verse 9, but... Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, this is like the third time that's reported that Festus wanted to do, do the Jews a favor. Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. And here's the phrase that sent him to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus when he, answered, uh, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul had two years to think about what was going on. Two years of sitting uh, in Caesarea um, in chains or under house arrest, depending on how you view that, that imprisonment. Here is Paul waiting and, and plotting, and he's writing letters uh, to probably to Philippi and to Colossae. He's probably written letters uh, during his Caesarean imprisonment, uh, written to the, uh, perhaps to the church at Ephesus, depending on how you date that uh, letter. Uh, and, and so here he is sitting in Caesarea, uh, confined at least under house arrest, and he's thinking and he's praying and, and, and he's asking God, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? How can I press forward? And so when Festus replaces Felix, uh, Paul saw an opportunity. Paul was a Roman citizen. And so when he appealed to Caesar, 
Festus, in that moment, his hands were tied. It was no longer up to Festus to judge Paul. Now it had to be done in Rome. Uh, that, that was a stroke of, of Paul saying, I must go to Rome. He understood. I, I haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing. I'm willingly, I, I willingly die if that's the judgment, if I've done something wrong, but I haven't, and I stand before Caesar's judgment seat, so I need to be judged by Caesar's court. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. And so Paul sets the pathway for him to go to Rome. As we get to the end of chapter 25, what we see is kind of a, uh, uh, a parading of the Apostle Paul before uh, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, and his sister Bernice. Uh, they came to Caesarea, which was also kind of a, uh, a resort place, uh, and they came to Caesarea, and, and uh, Festus said, I want you to I want you to hear from this Apostle Paul and hear about what he has to say. He said, uh, Festus said, I've got to write down charges against Paul. I don't know what to write. Uh, I I don't know how to accuse him, uh, but maybe you can help me after you hear from him. Uh, And so uh, this section Uh, verses 12 through, uh, verse 13 through 27, really just sets up what we're going to see on Sunday, how that Paul is set up to fulfill his calling and the calling of the church to tell uh, Agrippa and Bernice and Festus how that they can be saved by God's grace. Again, uh, all these setbacks were really setups by God to fulfill the calling to share the gospel. So that's chapter 24 and 25, but here's the question. How does that apply to you and me? Uh, We're not, uh, most of us will never see jail because uh, we are followers of Jesus. If we lived in different uh, countries, maybe. Uh, But today, we're not going to face jail time. We might face difficult time. We might face setbacks Uh, that are challenging for us. We might not get a raise at work because we're faithful followers of Christ. We might uh, be uh, barred uh, uh, from certain uh, social activities because we're followers of Jesus Christ. Perhaps uh, in the days ahead, we'll lose our jobs because we're followers of Jesus Christ and faithful in doing that. Uh, In those setbacks, well, we need to see through the lens of God's grace and sovereignty how that he is setting it up for us to share the gospel. What we see initially, uh, and really the application that I want us to have, begins first and foremost with this. God gives us must moments. There are must moments. I, I can uh, clearly tell you these God-given moments, these must moments in my life. Uh, when I was 11, uh, I must believe on Jesus and enter God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, repenting my sin. I must be a follower of Jesus. At the age of 20 or 21, I must be a preacher of the gospel and become a pastor for the church. Uh, I heard God's call into ministry. I must preach God's word. At the age of Uh, 23, I must marry Edie. 
God spoke clearly, Edie and Eric need to be married. I must marry Edie. At the age of 35, while I was pastoring in Mississippi, I heard another must moment. I must go to Norfolk, Virginia, in the seven cities of Hampton Roads and pastor First Baptist Church. These are must moments for me, clearly. And there'll be other must moments in my life. In fact, every day I'm looking for that must moment where I might encounter an individual who is far from God and share the gospel with them. I had the privilege of doing it uh, a few days ago uh, with uh, that one person in my life that I've been praying for and longing to them to see uh, 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 see Jesus as their only hope. And, and I found that must moment and I shared the gospel with this individual and they uh, declared their faith in Jesus Christ and hopefully they'll be baptized at beach baptism this upcoming Sunday. I'm excited about that as a must moment. The, uh, Jesus himself had must moments. In John chapter 4, we see that Jesus led his disciples to a village in the middle of Samaria, a village called Sychar, and he said, I must go to Samaria uh, to encounter a woman at a well in that village and share with her how that she could find life in the face of her death, how that she could find uh, hope in the face of her despair, how that she could experience forgiveness for sin and enter into a relationship with God and enter into his family. We hear it again in Luke chapter 19 where uh, Jesus stopped at the bottom of a sycamore tree and looked up and he saw a tax collector named Zacchaeus there and he said, uh, Zacchaeus come down for I must spend the day with you. And Jesus was given that divine must moment uh, to spend the day with Zacchaeus and lead him into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus himself. And Jesus uh, declared that, that he must go to Jerusalem, that the Son of Man must suffer many things at the hands of the uh, Pharisees and, and the Sanhedrin, and that he must be killed on a cross, and that he must rise from the dead so that he might bring salvation to sinners like you and me. And Jesus had his must moments, and he stepped into those must moments. Uh, and because Jesus was faithful in those must moments, faithful to God, you and I have a chance at having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul had his must moments. They began in Acts chapter 9, uh, when Jesus uh, put Paul on his knees, and Jesus uh, introduced himself to Paul, and he said, Paul, uh, I want you to go to a guy named Ananias, and, 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 and I'll tell you the things that you must do. He later said, Paul, uh, again in chapter 9, Paul must suffer many things at the hands of leaders and rulers uh, so that he might share the gospel with kings and rulers of Israel. Uh, Paul had his must moment in meeting Jesus and being transformed by God's grace through faith in him. Uh, his must moment of, of entering into the mission field and going on mission for, uh, for the gospel's sake, telling others who Jesus is. We saw again in Acts 19, verse 16, I believe, the apostle Paul said, I, I need to go to Jerusalem, but I must go to Rome to share the gospel there. Paul had his must moments. 
And those must moments are shaping our lives today. Those must moments are shaping your life today. God is calling you to specific must moments. Um, Every day there's this divine opportunity that God puts in our path to glorify him, to honor him, to share his good news with the one that he's put on our heart. These are must moments. Are you faithfully stepping into those must moments? It's through those must moments and answering God's call and his mandate on our heart to tell others who Jesus is, to step into the pathway of following Jesus. It's stepping into those pathways that we will face uh, personal setbacks, but those setbacks are setups by God's grace uh, to fulfill the calling that he's given us. Our church has those must moments. Uh, In the seasons of our 200-plus year history, we've had those must moments where we have stepped forward courageously and by faith so that we might be a people faithfully fulfilling the calling that God has given us and telling others who Jesus is. Are you being faithful to the must moment that God has given you? And God gives us those must moments. And those must moments of the gospel shape the very course of our lives. The second thing that I want you to see as we're examining the Apostle Paul is that God is always in the picture of our lives. This is something that we looked at on Sunday, how that we can be of good cheer because God is always with us. God is always at work. God is always moving us forward by his providence toward the fulfillment of his calling on our lives and for our church. He's orchestrating events and circumstances, many of which we might not like or even understand setbacks. But we need to understand that God is always at work. He is with us. He's shaping the events and circumstances of our lives so that we might step up into uh, the fulfillment of the calling that God has given us and share the gospel with others and be a people living the gospel in front of others. God is always at work. He is always with us. And this section in the, uh, in the book of Acts reminds me much of Esther, the book of Esther. Here is the queen of, uh, of, of this great kingdom, uh, and God's not mentioned at all, but this uh, little Jewish girl becomes queen of the known universe at that time, and God put her in that place so that his people might be rescued from danger. Now, God was not mentioned in the book of Esther at all, but he was always at work. Here in this section, we see the Apostle Paul uh, on trial, and, uh, and, and God may seem absent, but he is at work. He's behind the scenes, orchestrating the events. Now, whatever you're facing today, understand that God is right there, right there with you. He's orchestrating events, even the ones you don't like, so that you might step into the satisfaction of fulfilling the calling that God has given you. So God gives us these must moments. Are you fulfilling them? God is always in the picture of our lives. Are you holding his hand? And then third, I want to encourage you uh, to stay focused on our hope. You know, Paul in his defense before Felix uh, was very intent on the hope that he had. In fact, uh, rather than defending himself specifically against the charges that Tertullus brought, um, uh, he simply said in verse 15 and 16, I have hope in God. 
which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense or a clear conscience toward God and men. We have hope today, and we need to stay focused on that hope. Our hope is not in the things of this world. Our hope is in life eternal in the presence of God. We have a hope. It's a living hope, not a dead hope. It's a hope that gives us a a joy and a blessedness in the face of every circumstance. It is a hope in the resurrection uh, for us as followers of Christ into the very presence of God. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But that living hope also mandates a certain ethic that we have. Our ethic before God, we, wanna, we know that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an answer for the things we've done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, 2 Corinthians 5, we are given this calling. And so because we know we're going to answer to Jesus uh, in our resurrection, we're going to live accountable to God. Uh, but also, it, it relates to how we, uh, it, it speaks to how we relate to men and women around us. We know that, that God is going to hold us accountable for how we treat people around us, whether it's with kindness or with cursing, whether it's with love or hate, whether it's with the gospel or with silence. God is going to hold us accountable for how we relate to others. So today, I want to encourage you to stay focused on the hope that is in you and to share that hope with others. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he bless your coming in. May he bless your going out. May he fill your life with purpose that you set your hands to fulfill every day. God bless you and good evening.